0: Meanwhile, over in Justice League Annual Number 1 League International, Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Folks, this episode's going to be a little bit different. It's the first of what I'm calling Meanwhile Episodes. These are going to be a bit of a break from the usual numbered episodes and are going to provide us with the chance to look at the JLI outside of the normal ongoing monthly series. We're not venturing very far with this first outing, as we're going to be covering the first annual of the series. But in future Meanwhile Episodes, I'm hoping to cover such topics as like the infamous unaired Jla JLI television pilot, the various related comics like uh, the Mr. Miracle ongoing or Shazam A New Beginning, and maybe talk about the action figures or even some of the appearances in the cartoon tune. But for now, we're going to focus in on the annual. And if you don't know, by now, hopefully you do, my name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But I'm not flying alone, folks. Every single episode, I'm going to be featuring a different guest host. And today, my co-host is an old friend of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. And by friend, I mean someone that I really can't stand. But this individual is legendary for his written feedback he leaves on various podcasts. Some might even refer to his comments as uh, slices of his manifesto. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome to the embassy the man who put the crease in the Spine Network. Mr. Diablo Frank. How you doing, buddy?
1: Good to be here, Shag. Like Dr. Fate and Captain Marvel before me, I'm looking forward to getting my contractually obligated appearance with the JLI out of the way early and then never bothering with it again.
0: That's pretty much my plan for you as well.
1: And I'll do my best to get your listeners out of this episode in less time than your average Oscar broadcast.
0: (laughs) We're going to play the music and play you out, pal. (laughs) Folks, uh, just in case you've been waiting a while for this episode, it's because it took an extra 90 minutes to get started because Frank would not give me a break and let us get going.
1: True? Ace the giggles. Yes. frank got the giggles.
0: I got to tell you, I re-recorded that intro probably 10 times. I'm just saying. So what have you been up to, man?
1: Cranking out podcasts that aren't nearly as successful as yours. Let's talk about <laughs>
0: I don't know that you'd call this successful, but it's it's certainly more regular than yours. Well, folks, I'm gonna get us talking about today's topic, which is Justice League Annual Number no. One, which was released or on the shelves after Justice League number no. five, but it actually takes place between issues four and five, so it's a little confusing in that regard. And now if you're reading the specific single issue, it does make it clear that the annual takes place after issue number four. But if you're reading one of the reprints in the trades, it gets a little more blurry there. Like the trade, do you have the trade, Frank, or do you have the single issue?
1: I have the single issue.
0: Okay. So you, you got the pretty straightforward thing. But if you read the trade paperback, this is, this is crazy. The annual is reprinted at the end of the second volume of the trade paperbacks. That means the annual is printed in the trade after issue 12. The whole team is completely different by that point. Now, they give an explanation that that story takes place right after Booster joins the team, and that certainly explains it, but it's like eight months out of place in the collection. It's very, very weird. I I guess they just wanted to get the first seven issues in that first trade. I really don't know what their thought process was in that.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a question. I I know that the original trade fair back there released in the 80s also only collected the first handful of issues, and this should have been in the midst of those. But I guess that they were focusing on the core creative team and the core story.
0: Yeah, must have been. And I actually have that old trade. That's that's the one I picked up when I first got involved with, with the Justice League. It wouldn't be that big a deal. It's only one issue off, right? Except, as you know from last episode, something major happened in issue five, the infamous One Punch which changed Guy Gardner's personality for a very long time. And in this annual, Guy is still an A-class jerk. That's the only reason it really gets even a little bit sticky.
1: Well, that and, you know, you have a completely different lineup by issue 12. So that, that really throws you off, too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we get any further, you know what? We should probably take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, in each episode, we're going to select a collected edition to briefly discuss from InStockTrades. Usually, it'll be tied into that issue JLI in some way, shape, or fashion. Now, I'm going to let Frank go first, and I fully expect that this will have nothing to do with JLI like because Frank's insane. But first, let's just find out. What you got, Frank?
1: Well, what I'd like to do is recommend Bill Willingham's 1998 Pantheon Maxi series, which was published by Lone Star Press. It's a really cool, end-of-the-world kind of scenario with the superheroes under apocalyptic circumstances. And it was also sort of a... He was creating analogs to allow himself to end his Elemental series, which he lost control over when Comico uh, got the copyrights and then went into bankruptcy. Unfortunately, you can only find the first seven issues online, and and it's not available. It hadn't been in print for years. So instead, I'm going to recommend Dudley Class Trade Paperback Volume 1 Reagan Youth with a special low introductory price.
0: What, what is it? What was it called again?
1: Dudley Class Volume 1 Reagan Youth. OK. It's 1987. Marcus Lopez hates school. His grades suck. The jocks are hassling his friends. He can't focus in class. Except the jocks are the children of Joseph Stalin's top interrogator, and the teachers are members of an ancient league of assassins. The class he's failing is Dismemberment 101, and its crush is a double-digit body count. Welcome to the most brutal high school on Earth, where the world's top crime families send the next generation of assassins to be trained. Murder is an art. Killing is a crap. At King's Dominion School for the Deadly Arts, the dagger in your back isn't always metaphorical. Collecting the first arc of the most critically acclaimed new series of 2014 by writer Rick Remender and rising star artist Wesley Craig. Experience the 1980s underground through the eyes of the world's most damaged and dangerous teenagers. Published by Image Comics, it's 160 color pages. They were only asking you 9.99, but guess what? In-stock trade is going to give it to you for 5.79. That's <laughs> barely more than a modern Marvel, Marvel comic book for an entire trade. You say 42%. That's a lot of money. I work hard for my money. I want a lot of comic for my money, and they give it to you.
0: So other than the fact that you just like this comic, does it have any connection to JLI? Well, for
1: starters, it's set in 1987.
0: Okay. Well, okay, that's something. All right. I'll give right. you that.
1: It's contemporaneous. And if you were a fan of comics of that time period, if you grew up in that time period and you have nostalgia for that, if you bought these books off the newsstand, this book is going to really take you back. It's nostalgic, but it's not nostalgic in that romanticized way. It feels more like what the 80s were really like, and it feels a lot like that. <laughs> does, entertainment. Does it too.
0: feel like Jim Shooter fills every panel with a bunch of words?
1: Uh, I can't I can't work with that.
0: Oh god. <laughs> I thought I lost you.
1: <laughs> Actually, the thing is, I've never been a big fan of Rick Remender. I always felt like he was writing comics with the intention of them being adapted to screenplays or something. But when I was reading this book, it's very clear that Remender is just living through these characters. He's loving this period. He's writing from a world that he knows well and, and a period that he has strong feelings for, I have strong feelings for, and it completely turned around my opinion on him. I've read multiple trades in the series, and it's just really good stuff. Plus, it, while this is a, maybe a departure from justice league at the same time this annual is a departure from what you'd normally expect this really isn't a wahaha ha kind of issue it's much darker much more of a horror vibe to it so in that sense they do have a thematic connection
0: Wow, that was a really long way to go around to try and BS your way into making that work. But I'll give it to you, because Remender is a really good writer, and it does sound very interesting. So, fair enough. Folks, I'm going to recommend something a little more in tune with this issue, which is Fables, Trade Paperback Volume 1, Legends in Exile. Uh, now, if you haven't heard of Fables, you've been living under a rock. Obviously, it's hugely successful, and if you watch television, once upon a time, is clearly ripped off from it. And if you don't believe me, send me a private message, and I'll explain to you why it was. But anyway, this is... the first. Collection and it collects issues one through five. It you know, you are dealing with Snow White, you're dealing with Red Rose and Bigsby, and then I don't need to go into all the characters, you probably know them by now. If not, you need to read this series anyway. It is absolutely a joy to read. I've probably I think I've only read through like maybe the fifth or sixth trade, but guy, it's so good. It's a fantastic story. Where the gist of it is you find out that All the stories, the the fables that you knew growing up are now living in our real world in such a way that they've sort of integrated themselves in their own little society, and and you find out how all that interacts. Prince Charming, for example, if you've ever listened to the – you really paid attention to the fairy tales, there's multiple Prince Charmings. They deal with that in the story, and it's hysterical the way they approach it. It's written by Bill Willingham, who is the artist in the annual, this issue. The artist on the Fables book is Medina and some other folks. Covers by Mark Buckingham. Page count's 144 Normally retails for $12.99. You can get it on Trades for 42% off right now, so it's only $7.53. That is a heck of a steal, folks. Be sure to pick this up. And for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, as Frank and I are talking about the Justice League Annual, please feel free to go out on the social medias, use the hashtag uh that is plural, or um, you can also tag me at the JLI Podcast, either on Facebook or Twitter, and we'll find your comments because we want to hear from you. We, we want to hear what you think about this annual. We want to hear any of your testimony so we can get Frank committed to an asylum. Any kind of feedback is always appreciated because we really are trying to build a community around the JLI fans. We want to bring them all together, have a place where we all communicate, share our love, for the series, our passion, and our mutual hatred for Diablo Frank. I think it's you know, pretty straightforward.
1: Hey, Grandpa, did you just say pound FW Podcasts?
0: Yes, I did.
1: What geriatric people on Twitter are you going to try to hook up with? Dude. <laughs> ah.
0: What are all the cool kids saying nowadays?
1: You know, Actually, somebody asked me recently, I can't remember who, what, how, what is the hashtag? How do hashtags work? So I guess uh, Twitter's about to go the way of MySpace, if that's the case.
0: My stepson told me the other day that nobody uses Facebook anymore. I'm apparently really unhip. I'm okay with that.
1: It's Periscope now.
0: Uh, there's Periscope and Kick, apparently even Instagram's for old fogies now. We're so not cool.
1: Yeah, I'm okay with that, though.
0: I'm pretty just fine with it and get off my lawn while you're at it.
1: These days, I could Kick Cool's butt these days, so I'll I'll just stay the way I am, thanks. (laughs) I'm I'm a Generation X latchkey kid. That's how I roll.
0: Do you know what they used to call us? I was trying to explain this to my, my stepson who's a millennial. A lot of people are questioning what's gonna happen to the millennials and all this and whatnot. Our generation, Generation X, do you remember what they called us back in the 90s? Uh,
1: I, I just said latchkey kids. You got some other one?
0: We were the slacker generation.
1: We were the slackers.
0: Yeah, see? We were the slacker generation and we were gonna do anything. We were gonna be completely failures and completely screw up the world and... My golly, they were right. Look at that. So
1: ah, the baby boomers screwed up the world. We just inherited it. It's not our fault. We just didn't fix it.
0: Okay, well, that's a debate for another time. But let, we're not.
1: let go getting sensitive millennials take care of that business.
0: <laughs> All <laughs> right, back on topic here, sir. It is time, unfortunately, to have a chat with you. As I understand it, as I've read Scrawled on Bathroom Walls, you happen to be the fan of one particular member of the Justice League International. I, I believe it's somebody who's green and that's not Guy Gardner. I may be wrong on that. But what I'd like to know to start with is what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book and why did you fall in love with it?
1: Okay, so I was living in an apartment complex and just past the drive through liquor store – I love the landmark. Texas, folks. Uh, I pass the drive-by liquor store, and I find a little strip center comic shop. And that was like the first comic shop I ever had access to that was close to me.
0: Did they sell liquor in the comic shop?
1: No, no, no. You know, well, I didn't ask. I wasn't into the liquor then. Now, boy, that would have been kind of a nice combo. But Anyway, (laughs) so I go to this comic shop, and one thing that was really cool about it is I, I think they would have dinged copies of new books. So books within the last six months would be on this little wire rack. And they would be charging like 25 to 50 cents for books that were normally 75 cents. So I just love that. So, of course, we moved away from that comic shop within like six weeks of my finding it. But uh, one of the books that I managed to pick up was Just League International number 8, The Moving Day Issue, Ooh. which is one of the funniest comic books ever written. And I was already a fan of Ambush Bug by that point. I'd been picking up Son of Ambush Bug. And in that mm. comic shop, I actually got my run of the original miniseries. So I was totally primed for Keith Given's sense of humor. And I think one of the reasons why this book works so well is one of the few funny comic books that was actually funny, <laughs> I don't, I was funny but they don't actually manage to pull it off and so I, I loved Moving Day. I loved the, the humor in it. I loved the way the characters interacted with one another. And what was funny is when I moved to Nevada, DC didn't have great uh, distribution in Texas. They were actually better in Nevada. So not only was I able to pick up uh, JLI on a reasonably regular basis, but I also I'd gotten into Burn Superman through those dinged copies, and I managed to pick up that book. It was like my favorite book for six months or so there. And uh, so I was actually slowly starting to expand to the DC universe, and then two things happened. One, Millennium. Uh, <laughs> an awful lot of Millennium books. I never made it to the end of the miniseries, and a lot of those books I was sampling because of Millennium didn't make it out. But also, Justly International, as great as Moving Day was, the succeeding issues were not as strong as that one. And so instead of becoming a hardcore fan of JLI, I was actually pretty uh, infidelious to that series. I would pick it up here and there. There's a big gap in the teens that I didn't buy at all, and I didn't really commit to the books until another crossover, Invasion. And again, one of the funniest issues of Justice League International was the introduction of the Injustice Gang. <laughs> it was such a great issue. And so I ended up buying the book up through toward the end of the Ty Templeton run. And unfortunately, part of what I loved about the book was, of course, Kevin McGuire's much noted facial acting. The fact that I got laughs out of that book just from his drawing of a face, not even any words. He was so good at it. Todd Hamilton wasn't quite as strong as that, and I just sort of lost interest, and I completely missed the Adam Hughes run entirely. Oh, wow. Nothing. And I'm not sure if there's a distribution issue, but I just missed that stuff. And I didn't come back until the double uh, whammy of the Armageddon 2001 annuals. Listen, though, for somebody who hadn't been reading the book for a while, those were pretty good, especially the America one. Because if, to me, it felt like that was the end of the series because they were showing you where those characters could have ended up if the writers were able to, to take the book to its natural progression. Breakdowns wasn't quite as strong. I'm sure everybody, including the people who worked on those books, would note that. But it didn't make it all the way to the end, and the final issue of Justice League International was great. While I didn't make it past the Just League Spectacular because I could see the writing on the wall, they were going to go serious, and I had no interest in these characters being played straight, I still retained my affection for the books, went back and bought all the back issues down the line, and I do very much enjoy Just League International. But the truth is, I'm not as fanatical as a lot of other people. I, I like the, the stories, but I'm not as emotionally invested as in the individual members of the team as a lot of other people. So I'm actually a bit of a contrarian, which is good because the annual we're going to cover is very much not of a piece with the rest of the Just league output
0: well hey thanks for coming on the show it's been a real blast um i guess i'll talk to you another day (laughs) all right well since i already got you here and you already wrote half the synopsis i better keep you all right now that you've just trashed all over the book thanks for that who are your favorite jli characters now i would like you uh, there's one obvious one i'm assuming you're gonna say but let's try to keep the list down to maybe one to three characters
1: right okay so starting at number three the martian manhunter okay the reason for this is while i am a noted martian manhunter fan Just League International didn't make me a Manhunter fan. I was already interested in the character because of the superpowers action figure I bought and some other books that was related to that character I bought at the time. I enjoyed the appearances of the character. But then I read Martian Manhunter number one. I paid $1.75 for that book, which was a good chunk of change for a kid uh, who only managed to get to one comic strip the entire time he was in Nevada. And I hated that issue so much it turned me off the Manhunter for years. I just – it was not what I wanted as, as a kid reading that book.
0: Are you, you going to mention anything tonight that you like at, at any point?
1: So, well, I'm just saying while I like the Martian Manhunter in this book, he's my 9-in-3 guy because I didn't become a Manhunter fan because of this book. And one of the creators of this book actually kind of put me off of the character for a while. So number two mm-hmm. – Oberon. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I love that character. He is the most realistic person on the team, as far as his reactions to all the craziness that goes on. He interacts well with everybody. He's the bridge between Max Lord and John Jones, who are off planning stuff in the offices, and the guys that are on the ground. And he's just such a lovable character. I, I loved his uh, romantic relationship with B, or is it never really amounted to anything? But I just I, I enjoy the way he relates to all the different characters, and I, he's just one of my favorite elements of the book. I've, I've never I don't have a bad thing to say about Oberon
0: you know it's funny I, I've always liked Oberon but in my reread as I've been doing for this show I've fallen in love with him so much he is an absolute joy to read and as I'm sitting here looking at the subsequent miniseries you can't believe it's not the Justice League and things like that and I know Elrond has sort of taken the place of Oberon but it's just like wow I, I really kind of wish Oberon had made it into those miniseries
1: yeah I, I like Elron too but he does have a different energy to him he's just not as accepting and you can't relate to him the same way the funny thing about those miniseries is I enjoy those miniseries. And there were characters that I missed, especially in the first miniseries, because they had such a different lineup the first round. I really enjoyed it more when they brought in more of the classic characters in the second miniseries. But I, I do agree I could have used some more Oberon in that book. And I, in, in general, I mean, that character's kind of fallen off in recent years. And I think it's a shame because I'm much more interested in Oberon than I ever was in Mr. Miracle.
0: Hmm, interesting. Okay. So who's your number one?
1: Guy Gardner.
0: Oh, another Guy Gardner fan.
1: I'm sorry. He's the star of the book. And the thing is, as I was saying, you can put a lot of different characters together. And as long as you've got the classic team of Giffen, DeMatteis, and Kevin Maguire, you can make it work because they're going to bring the same humor. Hell, they even did The Defenders, which had a lot of the same energy as Justice League. And that was another great book. Mm -hmm. But the, the one character that you really miss, that just it doesn't feel quite right without him, is Guy Gardner because... He is so different than other superheroes, and in fact, I, I really miss. I, 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 I was enough a fan of Guy Gardner. I bought his entire series, mm-hmm. and there was that one little bit of a run where it was really great with Bo Smith and Mitch Bird. Oh, where so were, good! The it Warrior
0: was Warrior like, Saga was really good.
1: Yeah, with it was like Jack Burton in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it's just such a great. <laughs> and it just didn't work once Mitch Bird left. But they tried to redeem the character of Guy Gardner. They tried to make him a little bit more realistic and make him more heroic. And as much as I, I enjoyed some of the work on that book, it really ruined the character because you need a guy who's just a sumbitch. You need a guy who just doesn't get along it's with one anybody. word. I like that. <laughs> yeah, stirs up all kinds of trouble. He's arrogant. He's politically polaric. There's nobody else in comics like Guy Gardner when he was done right. And it reminds me about how Steve Englehart had written the character as being more of an antagonist. And he didn't want to do anything with the character anymore, so he let them have it in Justice League. And by the time they were done with Guy Gardner, Steve Englehart desperately wanted the character back and Andy Helfer wouldn't let him have Guy Gardner back
0: right absolutely true
1: so he's just such a unique presence and so important to the humor of Justice League that the book just isn't the same without him
0: I would totally agree I've been asked before if you were to sum up Justice League International in one character which of all of the lineup represents the team the most, I have to come back to Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner, you're right, sorry, Guy Gardner represents, I, I kind of want to say Blue Beetle, but it's really Guy Gardner represents the Justice League International more than any one particular individual.
1: Well, and the problem with Blue Beetle is he has to have Booster Gold there, too. It's yeah. Yeah. not the same without the two of them together, where Guy, you can put him in almost any situation, as long as he still has the personality that he exhibited here, it works. If you're going to get humor out of that, you're going to get aggravation, he's going to be that, that heart of the anti icon quality that is the Justice League.
0: What helps work, too, is they show him get on everyone's nerves. If they just made him a jerk without showing that and everyone just despising him for it, it wouldn't work as well, but it's all played out beautifully. And it it all goes back to the whole office comedy anyway. It just fits perfectly with that whole concept. So you mentioned Martian Manhunter is your third favorite character. Now, I think it's time to get into our... Character Spotlight. What I'd like to do is have you not only tell them a little bit about Marshmane Hunter, but also tell them why you're the go-to guy to hear about Marshmane Hunter. And in, in the character spotlight, folks, the idea here is not to necessarily recap the origin, but to talk about where the characters fit in the DC Universe, specifically around the JLI, whether it be how they came into the JLI or where they were in their lives at that time, and how the JLI impacted their character throughout their run. So, Frank, I, I put in my notes perhaps a three- to five-minute segment. I know that that's a myth, so take it away.
1: If you'd like to hear all about Martian Manhunter's adventures in 1987 and 1988, you should listen to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes.
0: <laughs> I'm never using that soundbite, ever, except in this show.
1: <laughs> uh, if you'd like to hear my general thoughts on the character, I told him the to count Drunk Hello and on the Secret Origins Podcast, episode 35, covering Booster Gold, Martian Manhunter, and Maxwell Lord. If you'd prefer my specific thoughts on John Jones' role in the formation of the Justice League of America, I discuss them with Ryan Daly on the Secret Origins podcast episode 32, also featuring Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, Chad Bokelman, and Keechee Baker. If you'd prefer I talk about how the alien atlas rejoined the JLA and the contemporaneous comic scene that also brought about JLI, I discuss that on Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, episode 14, covering 1984's Just League of America, number 228 through 230. Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, is incidentally a part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. <laughs> all features such shows as Just League, your national Bwahaha Podcast, the Secret Origins Podcast, the First Strike Invasion Podcast, Who's Who, the Definitive Podcast, the Universe, the Supermates Podcast, the Film and Water Podcast, and the Lonely Hearts Comics Podcast. And give me the Star Wars, the Power of Fishnet, so happy or not, Pod Dylan, and the Power Records podcast, but not DCRPG, the Heroes Point podcast. Somebody made that one up as an April Fool's gag. It does not exist.
0: (laughs) I'm not paying you for any of these plugs, by the way. (laughs) So there's a few other places. Isn't there like a Web TV website they can read about Martian Manhunter at, too? I, I,
1: I don't think that's around anymore, but if between all those shows you still have some questions or you just want the short version... John Jones was eating a meal with his parents and younger brother before going to his job as a scientist working on an experiment when he mysteriously disappeared. He had been mistakenly teleported to the Earth lab of Professor Mark Rodell, who promptly died of a heart attack and stranded John Jones. Wanting to make the best of a bad situation without breaking whatever the Martian version of the prime directive is, John Jones pretended to be a human detective in Middletown, USA, while secretly using his unearthly powers as a sleuth from outer space to curtail gangland violence, mad science, and act as a border guard against illegal aliens, the xenomorph version, not the Vasquez version. John also fought in a surprising amount of supernatural threats, which led to the presumed death of his human identity thanks to a ravenous cloud unleashed by the idolhead head of Diablo, uh, which the Martian Marvel and his other dimensional imp sidekick, Zook, chased after for a couple of years before finally destroying it. After 13 years of short solo stories in the pages of Detective Comics and House of Mystery, John Jones got canceled, and in 1968 was written out of comics due to a retcon that said he was a military science leader engaged in a violent global civil war divided along race lines. Suddenly, the Manor had only stayed on Earth because he was under a sentence of political exile, and when it was time to get parole, he showed up on a Martian beach with a hot native chick on a horse, only to find their giant monument to Marvin the Martian had been melted to slag. John threw himself on the beach and pounded the sand, crying, You maniacs! You blew it all up! Ah damn you, heron bird! Damn (laughs) you all to hell! Oh, goodness. Crossing some time strings there. Uh, that was basically how it happened, though. Mars was slow roasted under a blue flame, the JLA put it out, and all the surviving Martians buggered off to some other planet without leaving a forwarding address for John Jones. A few years later, John found them all on Dune, and every few years, some title would devote an issue or backup to a guest appearance where some of the other Justice Leaguers would have to save John and the Martians from House Conan because they were not as effectual as Ranians in the Bronze Age. Also, there was that one time Thanos with jaundice made Superman beat up John to steal the keys of the Death Star from him, and then God beat up Superman, and everything turned out for the best.
0: (laughs) DC Comics Presents, folks. Very warped rendition of it, but that's what that was.
1: Also, it turned out that John Jones was to his fellow Martians, as Jon Snow was to the Night's Watch, a borderline incompetent leader, and Mopey Cuss, who was offensively sympathetic to the enemy to the point where his own men would line up to stab him in the gut, yet inexplicably popular with a cult following who demanded he stick around. After Men are undermined their latest ill considered and ultimately humiliating military intervention. Mars unfairly voted John out of the house, just like David from the real world season two, Los Angeles, but not at all like the real world season three, San Francisco, because Puck totally deserved it, and that was more like the JLI ejected Guy Gardner after he sucker punched Ted Cord for that one time. After the Martian invasion, Aquaman disbanded the original JLA and formed a new team that John volunteered for because he was sad and he hadn't worked steadily in for like 16 years. Then Aquaman unethically manipulated individual team members and quit after a year to reconcile with his estr- estranged wife, Mira, leaving Martian Manhunter as an even worse team leader because his style is...
0: To be fair, I mean, Aquaman left for a pretty hot chick, so I'm just saying he had his reasons.
1: The hot chick dumped Martian Manhunter on Earth and said, "Now don't lose my number. So, yeah, sad times. So that left Martian Manhunter as an even worse team leader because his management style is to let everybody do whatever they want to, muck things up, and then he decides to guide a member or two into something resembling a strategy. It's also as almost as bad as his teaching style, where he was a mentor to the Dust League task force, which is to throw a member in the deep end of a bayou crawling with leeches and water moccasins and alligators, then watch them flail around from the dock until they either drown or get saved by another of his charges, who will then fire for coordination. Anyway, Batman was the incredibly abusive founder of the Outsiders until they stood up to his bullying, so he quit and took over leadership of the JLA, where he was an even way worse leader than Aquaman or Martian Manhunter. He spent most of his only full adventure as a captive of Despro, and he let Vibe save the day. Also, he believed that Atana was willingly kidnapped and tortured by some random demagogue dude named Adam and left her to rot before full on ghosting on the team like they were a bad Tinder hookup. <laughs> One issue, Batman just went upstairs like Judy Winslow on Family Matters and didn't come back down again until the JLA got started with nobody saying a word about it. And then he put the Team 7 issues in and left them, left them in the hands of an alien being with an entirely non-human cultural concept of mortality and... Yeah, it's a lucky that none of the Justice League International guys died under his watch, which led us to Justice League Annual Number 1, which, despite Demetrius' protestations when I interviewed him for the two Martian Manhunter 60th anniversary specials on the Island Head of Diablo podcast available through iTunes and the Internet Archive, was setting up the 1988 Martian Manhunter miniseries So Hard It Hurts, with additional lead-in material covered on First Strike, the Invasion podcast, Episode 7, a proud member of the Fire and Water podcast network.
0: I was wondering when you were going to finally mention your podcast about the Idlehead of Diablo. It took that long for you to mention that you have a podcast specifically dedicated to Marshall Manhunter.
1: I'm a humble fellow.
0: Did you mention the blog, Idlehead of Diablo blog?
1: Yeah, I put like six, seven years of my life into that. Uh, I'm the top uh, resource for recaps of the career of the human squirrel. So that was time well spent. (laughs)
0: And us debating whether Brimstone was a Martian Manhunter villain or a Firestorm villain.
1: You can have that one.
0: Remember like an hour ago when I said this was going to be like a three to five minute segment?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was optimistic. So – Kind of like me when I started the idle head of Diablo blog. And six years later, just wasted all those years of my life.
0: Oh, web TV. Uh, so my passion for Martian Manhunter actually comes from this series. You mentioned that this, he wasn't your favorite in this series. You fell in love with him elsewhere. I love him as the heart and soul of the Justice League. When I think about this version of Martian Manhunter versus the version of Martian Manhunter that was in like Grant Morrison's Justice League, while there's still some similarities, this is my Martian Manhunter. I especially in this annual actually, he's really I feel like a really good representation for the Jean Jones that. I love so uh, I, I'm happy to cover this. I'm excited about it because this this is
1: my guy. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, The the truth is, is I had a really long list of recommendations when I turned up on Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast episode of stuff that people should read if they want to be turned on the Martian Manhunter. This one didn't make it onto my core list, but it was definitely one of my runners up. And I actually got called out on it in the comments. What about that annual? It's like, that annual is really freaking cool, too. Read that as well.
0: There we go. All right. Well, folks, time to wake up. Frank's finally done talking. We're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Justice League Annual Number (laughs) 1.
2: All I wanted was to send a signal to Mars. How how could I have known it would teleport you here? Whoever you are, forgive me. An alien, an innocent one, stranded on this planet. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. Every trace of our once great civilization was obliterated. I lost my family, my wife, and my daughters. I was the only survivor, the last of my kind. I sought refuge on your planet. On Earth, I was hunted for 50 years. The humans are terrified of what they don't know. And sadly, I happen to fall
0: into that category. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. I dealt with these phantoms when I was a bounty hunter. I know how powerful they can be. I can't fight these fugitives alone. My name is John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. Neighbor of the Justice League. Telepathy is one of my many abilities. I am a shapeshifter. Martian manpower? Flight. I change my state or phase or new powers. I'm Mars' sole survivor.
2: There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. The Vital Head of the Avaloon, A podcast for Jean
1: Jones, The manhunter for Mars, his world, and the vile menagerie of villains he must confront. Available through iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive.
2: everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern Podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on, an Action Comics Weekly Podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of s*** about the way he acted, <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline, because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog.
1: He straight up like you said, he he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC comics. That's not super heroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story this story is it's it's not bad, it's not great, it's it's like the character himself, it's
2: like he's just it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss the Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this, this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs>
0: I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like, you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha,
2: as we discuss Dead Man.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story, it starts to be a Dead Man story, it forgets it's a Dead Man story, and then it comes back to being one, um, all in the span of eight pages.
2: Alan Middleton, as we discuss Blackhawk.
0: That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute, and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm -hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend, or at least tapping into that Tapping into that fertile story
2: and michael bailey as we discuss superman there is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that so it really exists in its own world at a time where the superman books were becoming more and more linked so it's this oddity on a number of levels and many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way The Action Comics Weekly Podcast, coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details.
0: Hey, folks. We're back. Now, just like any other episode, if you want to see some images from this issue, be sure to head out to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, go up to the shows button, and then find the JLI episode, and you will find a post that says Justice League Annual Number 1 Gallery Post. And that's going to be the post with lots of images from this issue, so when we talk about different things, and there are some amazing panels in this issue, you can hop right out there and check it out if you don't happen to have the the comic handy. Let's get right into it. This is Justice League Annual Number 1, DC Comics, cover dated 1987, that's right, no month. However, if you want to find a pristine copy on the shelves, you're going to need to go back to June 16th, 1987, and that's according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Thank you very much for that, Mike. The cover price was only a dollar twenty-five. A dollar twenty-five for this bumper size issue. Could you imagine a time when you only had to spend five quarters on a comic this big? I can't even remember. I'm so
1: upset about the dollar I spent on Martian Man Number One, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just raking me over the coals, why don't you?
0: Well, the cover is by Bill Willingham and Joseph Rubenstein. Tell you what, Frank, why don't you describe the cover for the folks at home?
1: Basically, everybody is piling on to John Jones. He's uh, splayed out like he was going to be drawn and quartered. He's got Mr. Miracle on his back. He's got uh, Batman coming up at him. I don't know quite what. Black Canary's doing. Maybe she's got him by the back of his belt or something. He's kicking Booster Gold in the face, which is reason enough to love the guy. And uh, <laughs> Guy Gardner comes up to the fray while he's also palming Blue Beetle in the face. And the blurb says, hunting the Manhunter. It's got that cool Justice League logo, logo that did not get used enough, and I think Mike Gillis was talking about that in a previous episode. And I love, it's got this freaking fuchsia background. It's like hot pink. I bet you, you could see this thing from a mile away on the stands.
0: Absolutely. And nothing says mid to late 80s dc to me more than this color like if you flip through crisis on infinite earths this color is used so much you know and and then unfortunately this color became the victim of the uh, flexographic process quite often on a lot of those comics back then but here it looks great it absolutely looks fantastic i love martian manhunter's face it's all just done in shadow but you see him you see the struggle you see him like ah.
1: well and he's perfectly on model too. he looks just like the toy oh kid you'd totally be down for that
0: and seeing Guy Gardner, like you said, leaping into the fray, that is exactly the perfect description for what he's doing. I mean, you can't see his face, but you just know he's like, BUNZA! You know, leaping right onto the whole dog pile. It cracks me up. I love this cover.
1: By the way, I really like that Manhunter logo that's on the cover, too. I don't think that ever appear anywhere else.
0: Oh, yeah. It's got kind of like the dirty, scratchy, scratchy bottom and everything. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, folks, all right. Uh, getting into the issue it is plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler, Bill Willingham, inker, Dennis Janky, Uh Oh, actually, there's a lot of inkers here. Okay. Dennis Janke, P. Craig Russell, Bill Ray, Robert Campanella, Bruce Patterson, and Dick Giordano. That's a lot of folks. Lettering by Bob Lappin, Colors Gene D'Angelo, Editor Andy Helfer. The title of the issue is Germ Warfare, and this is a bumper-sized 38 pages When the issue kicks off, it it starts off on a mysterious tropical island. We're introduced to four guys who just arrived via helicopter from Cord Industries. Apparently, Cord Industries has recently purchased a company with a subsidiary that uh, has an abandoned research facility on this tropical island. They abandoned it a few years ago. And it led me to wonder whether this was published before or after the Jurassic Park novel had to go back and look at it. After a humorous moment or two when the guys mix up classic Star Trek for Twilight Zone, they enter the abandoned research facility. Then they encounter an eerie native woman whose eyes are all black with red pupils. Apparently, some time passes and the guys all leave in the helicopter. Each of them are now possessed with the black eyes and the red pupils. The native woman mutters about the guy spreading her gospel and converting others to her cause.
2: Ooh.
0: Or, I guess I should say,
2: <laughs>
0: the scene changes and we're treated to a full. Thanks for laughing. Uh, the scene changes and we're treated to a full. I'm laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> A full-page splash of Guy Gardner threatening Batman. He's telling him to back off. Batman very calmly yet threateningly explains that it's Guy's turn on monitor duty. Guy is complaining because leaving for monitor duty will pull him away from the poker game he's playing with the other JLI members. Dr. Fate gets in on the action and successfully intimidates Guy into cooperating. Now, Guy isn't on monitor duty very long when the system reports a possible international incident. There have been reports of large groups of people on four different continents all suddenly acting very strangely. Very diverse groups, all acting as if they're being influenced by a single will or a single mind. Batman discusses the situation with the various Justice League members, asking their opinion. After a few moments, Batman shows his true intentions. He's already made up his mind about the next steps, but he's asking his teammates their thoughts simply to make his coworkers and I quote, feel included in the decision-making process.
1: <laughs> he's such a jerk.
0: Totally is. Totally is. The team breaks into groups of two, and Dr. Fate magically transports most of the teams. So you get one team, which is Booster Gold and Black Canary, heading to Paris, France. Batman and Guy Gardner are heading to Tokyo, Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle are heading to Hollywood, and Martian Manhunter and Dr. Fate are heading to Sydney, Australia. Now we find Booster uh, in sort of a romantic mood as he flies over Paris with Black Canary in his arms. After Booster makes several unappreciated advances of Black Canary, they investigate a hospital coincidentally located near a court industry facility. In a sort of cliché way, the hospital is quiet. It's too quiet. Then the hospital patients and staff alike begin to surround our heroes. The patient's eyes are all black with red pupils. And Booster describes them as like they're dead inside. Now, they try to hold off the attackers without hurting them because they realize these people are probably innocent. After a chase through their hospital, our heroes find themselves also infected. We see they now have the dead eyes with black and red pupils. And Booster then states, I understand now. The scene changes to downtown Tokyo. Batman and Guy Gardner are searching for their assigned outbreak location. Well, the guy actually would rather be checking out the geishas or a sushi joint, but Batman Mm -hmm. isn't having it. They arrive at the research facility in question and encounter their former teammate, Dr. Light, who just recently quit the team in a pretty spectacular fashion. She's in plain clothes and leading a group of others, all of whom have those dead eyes. And then there's a scuffle in which features uh, some blinding flashes, some green constructs of umbrellas and monster machines, and Dr. Light punching Guy Gardner in the jaw, and finally she plants a bit. Big old kiss on the dark night. And after a moment of Batman passionately returning the kiss both Batman and Guy Gardner now have the dead eyes. And there's some discussion about how love will unite and make them whole. Mm. While flying en route to Hollywood, via the Bug Airship, we meet up with Mr. Miracle and Blue Beetle. They're discussing how all the problems seem to center around Cord Industries facilities. And for those of the people that don't know, Blue Beetle is secretly Ted Cord, the head of Cord Industries, which at this point was still a very successful company, and Ted was like a multi-millionaire kind of CEO guy. So, Beetle jokes about how it is in the 1980s, how he can be a Corporate executive, a superhero, and have a fulfilling personal life. He and then he admits he copes by having nervous breakdowns every other Sunday. <laughs> Mr. Miracle then jokes about his moniker and uh, his ability to perform miracles, and there's some somewhat uncomfortable comparisons between him and Jesus Christ. <laughs> the bug ship touches down on the roof of the Los Angeles facility of Court Industries. Our heroes are then immediately swarmed by tons of those dead-eyed people. In fact, they come pouring out of this roofway doorway so fast they knock Mr. Miracle off balance, and he falls off the roof. And we're treated to five glorious vertical panels showing Mr. Miracle plummeting towards the ground as he pulls out his hover discs and at the last moment starts flying back up to the roof. It's really, really outstanding storytelling here. And Beetle extricates himself from the crowd but not before it's too late. After an amazing run across the top of the bug airship, Beetle feels the effects of the dead eye infection overtake him and then he plans to give it to Mr. Miracle next. Frank, why don't you take the rest of
1: this thing? Dr. Payton, Marsha Manhunter arrived by magic above the Sydney Opera House, literally the only landmark in all of Australia that an American can recognize. <laughs> John says that this is his first trip to Oz, which really puts a damper on the whole greatest hero of the southern hemisphere that's more recognizable than Superman angle. Grand Morrison and Mark Miller tried to float in the late nineties. Dr. Fate's all like, I can't get no zombie cold and stuff. And then one hot shoe later, he's throwing the helm of Naboo at John and talking like a Stepford Duger. <laughs> The Martian Manhunter is the only leaguer for legit immune to the virus, so its other sufferers blow him off to go looking for more susceptible types. John consults the JLI computer back in the secret sanctuary, but its cutting edge, save the art technology of a fifty-six K modem just isn't cutting edge. <laughs> Even though Glorious Godfrey was driven insane from donning the helm of Naboo just one crossover event ago, Jean does the same thing over again and gets a different result. Albert Einstein has zero traction on Mars, let me tell you. So the helm tells Jean he's up against a sentient cell created by Earth science through an accidental mutation, and he traces the point of origin to that island lab from the beginning of the book but he still doesn't know what to do about it except walk into the trap. The infected Mr. Miracle throws a larvae bomb at John, which looks like the intestines of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and are about as effective a deterrent to a dude with a Superman-level power set. The alien atlas uses elongation to squirm out of his organic heap of shackles to ground scot Free, then uses Super Breath to blow away Blue Beetle and his bug craft. The Martian Miracle Man just straight up throws Guy Gardner into the stratosphere with super strength, while also noting that his friends are still fighting for their freedom against the virus. So none of these actions can be used against them on a versus threat. Figuring that between... (laughs) Figuring that between repeatedly showing each and every leaguer get individually compromised by the virus and allowing Marshmallow to shred his stuff, they burn through enough pages to get paid for an annual office of standard issues worth of plot. The rest of the league oh. gets gone, and unleashes another unique hit combo after seeming to call it a day with the larvae bomb thing. The virus decides to create a giant Japanese style kaiju giant out of the interlocking bodies of normal infected humans. Imagine taking Barrel of Monkeys and combining it with the 1989 body horror flick Society to form a fleshy Tron, or just one of those <laughs> pictures that make a picture out of other pictures that did not spruce up your dorm room, no matter what Ikea told you. <laughs>
0: Leather Leatherface is go.
1: <laughs> Whether he was genuinely concerned for the safety of the Megamorph meat puppet or he just got that Brian using the reference and was totally grossed out, I do have it on good authority that Jean was a VHS crypt kind of cat. The Manhunter didn't even want to touch this thing. Instead of heroing up, Jean threw the helm of Naboo at the flesh fest and said, you deal with it. Dr. Fate briefly gains control of the man mound and explains that the only way to contain the virus permanently is to house it within Jean Jones's alien body. Jean freaks out for half a second and like the four Fourth, really overt foreshadowing of the following year's major and long-lasting Martian Manhunter retcon that agrees to host the Sentient Cell Within himself, which got followed up in 1988's Martian Manhunter miniseries. The recovered leaguers are half-congratulatory and half leery of John Jones, the sentient CDC jar, but he's also like this is the price we pay to save the day and also to finally get our own miniseries after 33 years as a parasitic strip and other people's books. It was Tote's Meta. <laughs>
0: God. Thanks for bringing that home, Frank. Really appreciate it. Such a little uh, pick-me-up and happy ending. (laughs) All right, so I think I kind of get a sense for how you felt about the book, but why don't you tell us what you thought?
1: I thought it was great.
0: (laughs) It's not what I just heard in the last
1: five minutes? Look, I'm the guy. I can find fault in just about anything. But that doesn't mean I can't enjoy Marshmancer kicking the hell out of the Justice League, and I I dig horror stories. I like it when superheroes get involved in horror stories. And what was great about this one is you could do the whole invasion of the Body Snatchers thing, but it didn't have to go so dark. Nobody died. There was no permanent injury. It was just all about being creepy and having the messed up eyes and stuff. So I I can totally dig that. I can also, you know, I know enough about the craft to see where people are kind of, you know. Taking advantage of circumstances. But I want to see Marshmander kick people's butts. I don't mind seeing the individual Justice Leaguers get attacked one after another in a cyclical fashion that starts to get repetitive after a while. But while I'm reading the book and my brain's turned off and I'm just enjoying it for what it is, it's, it's a fun ride. Great artwork, too.
0: Oh, yeah. Actually, let's talk about Bill William for just a second here. You know, he's so well-known nowadays as a writer. A lot of people don't even realize he used to be an artist. And it's funny, whenever I think of him as an artist, what's the first thing you think of when you think of him as an artist? Elementals. I think of those old Dungeons & Dragons one-page strips he used to draw in the comics. Do you remember those?
1: He got a little bit better by the time he was on Elemental. Well, he
0: drew the good ones because there was some really bad Dungeons <laughs> & Dragons ones, and then there was the good ones. He drew the good ones.
1: Some of uh, those I could have taken credit for drawing and nobody could really dispute it. Because those,
0: weren't <laughs> those weren't bills. Those weren't bills. Those were the earlier ones with the green slime I remember quite well. It's interesting also that there are a lot of artists that become writers that continue to be both. I mean, you look at like a Dan Jurgens, or you look at you know John Byrne, who are artists who become writers and they stay in both of those camps. Bill Willingham really kind of walked away from drawing, at least as far as I know, and strictly became a writer. There's not a lot of artists who make that transition successful.
1: Yeah, well, I, for starters, I think a lot of times uh, you're going to be stronger in one discipline than the other. And for most of the history of comics, being an artist was a more marketable uh cr- Craft than being a writer, I think that has changed quite a bit in recent years, and I think Bill Willingham has taken advantage of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is tricky. I do think that typically, if you're a good artist and you're, you can sell yourself as an artist, you may not be as strong as, of a writer. And certainly, there have been writers that try to sell themselves as artists, including Jim Shooter, Larry Hama, Mark Gruenwald they just weren't fast enough and or they needed they were heavily dependent on an inker to make their stuff work so they just decided to be writers and focus on that craft so I do have to comment Bill willingham but also I, I just think that he was kind of slow and I don't think that he was a big fan of the actual process of drawing he got tired of it and he's he's an excellent writer so shoot shake your money maker what can I say <laughs>
0: Well, you're right. The art in this book is absolutely stunning. Uh, now, I realize there's a whole lot of different inkers going on here and I'm, I assume that probably happened just due to a time crunch but some of these pages are just absolutely beautiful.
1: Yeah, I mean, some are better than others. I think the P. Craig Russell pages are the weakest. For some reason, him inking Willingham looked like bad early McFarlane hmm. but some of them are really good. I thought that uh, Robert Campanella did an excellent job on his pages and, uh, you know, I thought it was Terry Austin awesome, to be honest with you. I wish that that they'd gotten Bill Willingham to take over the issues of the book that Kevin McGuire couldn't do. Mm-hmm. I think one of the problems is I believe that he was still doing elementals and he was sort of moonlighting on these books uh, and they did give him an annual. The second annual was his as well and they, they made a habit of that. They'd get a strong artist and just let them do the annuals. Mike McCone kind of began his career as the guy who just did Justice League annuals. Mm. That was back in the days where you could do that. Like Art Adams would only do like one or two annuals a year. But- oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of wish Bill-, Bill Willingham had done something along those lines. Uh, and I, I honestly, I probably would have had greater fidelity to the book if they'd had him do more work on it.
0: Well, and as we get further along in the regular issue coverage, we'll get to some of those issues where Kevin McGuire didn't fill in. And without being too harsh, I would have to agree. Yes, there were some issues that would have benefited from his artwork, certainly.
1: And boy, I wish he'd drawn the mini Miniseries, too. He does a really great Manhunter. He really does now i, I
0: there 's a lot of art here I want to talk about like the the splash page with Guy Gardner is just <laughs> awesome. I mean Guy looks so on model with his giant face yelling and it just there's varying levels of how Guy looks throughout this issue, but that one splash page is just dead-on gorgeous. I absolutely love it.
1: Yeah, that one is cool. But I, I was actually more impressed one page earlier. I love that one shot of the native girl. Yes. She had such unique features. You could tell she, she I don't know if he, if he modeled her after somebody, or he, he just managed to make her so distinct-looking. She appears in, like, a panel, and she looks so great. I want to see more of this character, just because I, I want to see him draw her more. She's spooky, and she, she just feels like a real person in this story
0: frank's got a crush frank's got a crush Okay, the and there's lots of little tiny touches that are just wonderful in the background. Like when in the, in the splash page where they're all flying on uh page eight, the, the league's flying right before they all split up into little teams. Guy Garner's created the the construct for Batman to stand on, which would have been perfect right out of a, a Robot Chicken episode. Yeah. But he's given the construct little bat wings because you know Bruce is all about the branding and the marketing.
1: I didn't catch that. Nice.
0: Yeah, you know I'm sure Bruce had insistence probably because you know, he's got to have that
1: brand. Well, and he, and he didn't cheat on the bug either. I mean, it's fully rendered here, which. Which looks cool.
0: It the bug is gorgeous. Now, let's talk about that scene you mentioned it. I think it's the Campanella pages with uh, Mr. Miracle and mm-hmm. Blue Beetle. Now, I realized Keith Giffen did the breakdowns. So, that amazing five-panel uh, vertical panel of of Mr. Miracle dropping was probably Keith's idea, but it is rendered so cool. It looks awesome. I, I
1: love this cuz this is the comics equivalent of bullet time. This is that slow motion shot <laughs> you know how to read comics so we can see it. And yeah, you, it it definitely sells the action.
0: Yeah, it really does. And and then on the next page, when Beetle is trying to get away from the, the Dead Eye people, and the bug just comes up at the roof line at an angle. I've never seen this before. I've never seen this in a Blue Beetle comic. Maybe I read, I've i read the Blue Beetle series, maybe I just don't remember, but where the beetle is at like a 45 degree, or the bug is at a 45 degree angle, and Beetle literally runs up along the roof of the bug to get back in the ship and get away from the, the zombies. It's just, it looks phenomenal. It, it makes for a really great action scene that I was genuinely caught up in and got really excited about.
1: Yeah, I think you'd often grab like the little Rope handle thing they're dangled around, yeah. it's much more dynamic, and the physics work. So yeah, I agree, it's really cool, and that, that's a real nice shot of Miss Mar- uh, Burekul facing that page as well.
0: Really, really good. Now, your buddy Martian Manhunter. There's a couple of really great shots in here. First off, I got to say,
1: he's got nipples. He's uh, wants to be authentic.
0: That's. I, I think you've done discussions on that before. That doesn't happen very often, does it?
1: Uh, it comes and goes. Hulk has a similar problems, by the way. I think it's a Green Man thing.
0: <laughs> does she Hulk have that problem?
1: No, I, and I've been looking too. <laughs> Uh
0: stay classy right stay classy, stay classy. Now, probably one of the boss panels of this issue, and I've even seen people talking about it on Twitter recently in preparation for this episode, is Martian Manhunter putting on the Dr. Fate helmet.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't think that adding a yellow helmet to a green and blue character would work that well, but it looks really freaking cool. I used to have that scan on my old Web TV page, uh, which was why that image, because it's freaking cool, that's why. And I did <laughs> uh, co-esque energy swirls around him as well. You get, you get the sense of the arcane in that one moment.
0: It really does. And I mean, the, the line work, you know, the vertical lines on the helmet giving the shadowing and the, the crazy, like you said, Ditkoette stuff in the background, it really sells it. And it just, I mean, Dr. Fate's helmet has always been totally boss. I mean, it's a great looking design element and it just works here. And it, you're right, it makes me want to see more of Martian Manhunter with the helmet on.
1: Mm -hmm. I like seeing uh, Martian Manhunter and Dr. Fate interacting, which I think they did more in this story than any place else. Because, you you know, you and Rob have argued about whether or not there's an Earth-2 Aquaman. But the one thing we can definitely agree on is there's no Earth-1 Dr. Fate and there's no Earth-2 Martian Manhunter. And to me, I've always seen these guys as the closest analogs to one another. And they were often kind of paired off with each other when they would do those crossover stories because they have somewhat similar, you know, looks. Not looks, but like the way they carry themselves, they're dark and mysterious. And But, of course, Dr. Fate's all mystical, and Martian Manhunter's based more in science fantasy. So I just enjoy seeing them play off each other, or, or maybe it's just because they came out in the same wave of the superpowers collection. <laughs> <And> I- <laughs>
0: that is my favorite wave. It's Martian Manhunter, Dr. Fate, Firestorm, Green Arrow, and I think Red Tornado. I mean, that's a great wave.
1: To- hey, Side with the Omega effect.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. I, I, there's something about the dark side figures. I don't know why. I think it started with the Total Justice line. I just, I've never picked up a dark side figure.
1: I impressed my first girlfriend showing her the Omega effect with my dark side, so, you know, <laughs> a little attachment here. <laughs>
0: I'm sure that relationship lasted days
1: entirely. So, Hey, you don't like her. She was the Doctor Who fan of oh, the two. Okay, guys.
0: yeah, all right. I can get by that. So you mentioned Dr. Fate, and I'm glad you did, because this is really the first story in the entire Justice League run where he is a functioning member of the team. Now, I mean, he, he appears in issue five, I think, if I remember right. I don't know. I'm trying to remember yeah, now. Yeah,
1: he's, he's the, the two involving the Gray Man, right? That's right,
0: the Gray Man storyline starts in issue five. Okay, but really, since this takes place before that, this takes place after issue four, this is the first time we get Dr. Fate as a function member of the team. And it's great. I, I really, really regret that they took Dr. Fate out of the team so early. He would have been so awesome on this team. Oh.
1: and yeah, I've heard you guys debate over this on previous episodes. And the way I see it is if you're trying to do more realistic, grounded stories, he's just so much more powerful. And you have to up the villain game so much that it was kind of, I think, going to interfere with them turning the series into a comedy. Uh, and I think this, ep- this issue is a good example of that because they had to turn it into this dark horror story and it's a spotlight for the two characters that work better in that environment than they do in comedy but with the Marshman Hunter because of his variety of weaknesses and the fact that a lot of the drama for that character came from the headaches that the fellow members were giving him as team leader you can still make him work with fate you just you having the two of them especially together you really have to have a, a formidable villain and it's hard to get your yucks on with, with, in those circumstances if these guys are going up against MangaCon it's, it's hard to see them not wiping that guy out in one issue
0: well, that, that's just the month that Dr. Fate's away. You know, he's caught up yeah, doing I mean, some Lords of uh, Order stuff that month.
1: Yeah, and well, that, and I mean, I know you're a big fan of that series, but it felt to me like they they couldn't figure out who Dr. Fate was going to be. And I think they played against Dr. Fate's strengths in that uh, series. Uh, they they played too much into it being a spinoff of Justice League. There was too much humor and too much quirkiness, where for me, Dr. Strange should probably play, play sorry.
0: Dr. Dr. Strange? <laughs> you're okay. on the wrong I, podcast, sir.
1: I feel like Dr. Fate needs to play played more straight and more heroic than dr strange i think you actually have more flexibility with that character than you do with fate and instead they took such liberties with the character that i think it, it compromised what made him a strong you know concept i, I think that dr fate should be imposing he should be like whoa dang dr fate's here and i think he lost that over the course of that series and i think it would have been even worse if he stayed in the just league book
0: pains me to admit you might be right, so I'm not going to say those words.
1: Also, Booster Gold's got the same color scheme, so that's a problem as well. Yeah, I don't care. Dr. Fate had it first. So you're going to bump Booster Gold for Dr. Fate? No, I just – it, it could have Shut up. I don't like you. I told you i ruin everything. You do. You
0: are a ruiner. I think Ryan Daly termed that, coined that term for you, or maybe it was Siskoid. <laughs> you are a ruiner, sir. Ruiner. No,
1: it was Siskoid, yeah, but Ryan picked up that ball because he knows oh, – yeah.
0: Now, you you hinted at it earlier. This issue is an anomaly in the run so far. It is very much a more straightforward action story. It it feels like a real superhero team story. It even has sort of a downbeat ending. And uh, it still has some of the humor, but it's not over the top. I I just think this is a great, well-put-together story. Now, is it iconic Justice League International wah-ha-ha moments? No. But it makes for a great issue with these characters.
1: Well, I think it's more iconic Justice League, though. Uh, That was one of the things that you had a problem with uh, the Detroit team is everybody kind of fobbed them off. That they were like sub outsiders, that they were really weak, and they couldn't stand up as standard bearers to that name. But then you read the Despro story, where things got taken very seriously, and the scale was much higher, and of course the art quality was much stronger too, because they didn't keep throwing in George Tusca out of nowhere so in, at least for that Despro story the Justice League Detroit era were the Justice League they, they fit what they, they were doing the kind of stories that they were supposed to do in order to have that banner and I think there's the same here it may not be a Justice League international story necessarily but I think it was great to see this opportunity for the league to this league to have an iconic Justice League story a big bad oh man I don't know what's going to happen you know these guys kind of story and I, I think that this echoes the Despro story that would come up later on in the run but also it's funny because you are talking about how it's placed in the trade paperbacks and as I recall the end of the second year was a little bit heavier as well as they were dealing with the Maxwell Lord story and the Suicide Squad crossover yeah. so I guess in terms of tone the story probably works better collected in that fashion
0: hmm. interesting no prize there sir hmm. I guess that could work so uh, let's see what else Dr. Light does show up in the issue and it cracks me up because she is still not in costume <laughs> that, that is that is a thing other than the cover of issue number one Dr. Light never appears in the Giffen Demontea run in costume it's absolutely insane i i don't know whether it just became a running gag or they just didn't like her costume or what was it about it but i'm i'm thrilled to see her in plain clothes once again
1: I think that maybe there was some resentment at the character maybe a lot of these guys that grew up in Silver Age didn't want to see their goofy Dr. Light villain get replaced by this new person and so I wonder if maybe that's part of the reason why that character didn't get any traction at this point in time they finally brought her in when they wanted to emphasize the international qualities of the teams Mm -hmm. after the Justice League Spectacular she never had the personality to fit in a humor book she worked better played straight but I don't think there was ever a, a real groundswell of support for her as much I would like to see more Asian heroes in the DC universe. I, she just, she came in compromised because of the association with Dr. Light that really came out of nowhere. And I still don't understand what they were thinking when they created her in the first place.
0: Well, they, they it's not just the Dr. Light association. And he was only mildly creepy at that point. He wasn't even nearly as much as he would become later, but it was also, she was really unpleasant. I mean, if you go back and reread those crisis issues, she's a really, really, she, she's a bitch is what it boils down to. She's a very mean lady and she's very self-serving and, you don't want to follow her as a hero unless it's sort of like you know part of a kind of like a Guy Gardner thing. She would function on the team quite well, like a Guy Gardner, someone that you'd love to hate. And I guess they because they had Guy in that role, they didn't feel like doing that with her. And I don't think I think that's why nobody really found a place for her until the international era of the league. And uh, she, by then, she, they had watered her character down so much; she was very mousy.
1: Yeah, there wasn't a lot to her there, and and I agree with Guy and his buffoonery, despite there being some serious reasons for it. It's still easier to, to have this guy go through the Pratt falls and had this guy get slagged by his teammates than it is to have this petite asian woman getting treated the same way it just it doesn't resonate as as humorous you feel like she would be getting bullied and it creates this kind of a toxic atmosphere so it kind of makes sense when you think about it in those terms that but i I actually like characters that aren't uh playing to the audience i like triumph i like the spoilers and i i do think that's a valuable character type to have on teams you want to have somebody that people kind of don't like
0: you mean ruiners
1: yeah, like Ruiners. I, I, so clearly, I, I, they're my spirit animals.
0: <laughs> I kind of like Triumph as well. Now, I, to be fair, I, I did I did forget uh, Kimio in the International Era. She did have her mousy period, but she did grow into her own to be quite a strong character over time. It just took a long time to get there, so I don't want to sell her short completely.
1: Well, and uh, they didn't tone down Lady Quark, and I always thought she mm, was, really, there you she go. was really intense in the Legion. They, they didn't compromise her. In fact, if anything, she got more aggressive over the years and I I really think that was a cool character too I wish she'd managed to do more stuff outside of Legion but if you've ever read the Legion run she is I think one of the highlights of the run
0: She is great. She is absolutely great. I I do – you know, I missed that Legion run. That was a lot of fun. I I think I stopped shortly after it became Rebels, but Mm -hmm. uh, I I did enjoy the Legion series
1: quite a bit. Rebels was really good, too. It took a few issues to get going, but by the end, I thought it was very strong. Okay. All right.
0: I've just got lots of random notes, so feel free to jump in here at any point or feel free to shut up for a bit because God knows I'm sick of hearing you. I love that they use Court Industries. I think that's fantastic. It's always good to see, you know, Ted when he was still a powerful executive. And I kind of hinted at it in the opening recap – I really did feel like it was the abandoned island from you know Jurassic Park, The Lost World, you know when the the, the beta site or whatever it was called. Do you remember the movie?
1: I remember the movie. I hate dinosaurs. Remember? <laughs> Nobody hates dinosaurs, Frank. I have no interest in dinosaurs.
0: Fine, whatever. But I,
1: I movie in the theater too, and that same night I accidentally sat in an ant bed and uh, they bit me all over, and I got sick, and I had to have an Epsom salt bath to get over it. So negative associations, but also never liked dinosaurs. <laughs>
0: So contrary to everything. Anyway, I, I had to go back and check the release dates for those Jurassic Park novels just to see because I felt like it was almost like the InGen Island from those uh, movies, which you apparently hate with a passion of a thousand burning suns. Passion. At least you've got some. So.
1: No, no, no. I'm just. I like pointing out that you continue to get that quote completely wrong. <laughs>
0: What did I with say?
1: The intensity. You say passion all the time.
0: Oh it oh is it it's intensity it with thousand
1: burning suns? I think it's the intensity, yes. It, because the sun doesn't have passion. It's a big hot rock.
0: Isn't it about sentry? Isn't that what this is? Or is that a thousand ten thousand exploding suns?
1: Sentry with marvel. Where, where, where do I
0: get that quote from anyway? I don't even remember. Beats me.
1: Then you can't tell me I'm getting it wrong. No, I mean it's inherently wrong within the context of what you're trying to communicate.
0: Well you're inherently wrong for the air you breathe, sir. <laughs> So take that, my kindergarten comeback. So anyway, let's talk about Guy Gardner on monitor duty. (laughs) I love the little construct he makes of Batman's head. It has a little floating gun next to it. That is hysterical. I tell you, as we head into the post-One Punch era... I'm going to miss this version of Guy Gardner. I'm going to have a hard time not having this guy around for many, many months. It's going to be a challenge, but...
1: It's, it's going to be different, but I, I really enjoy uh, Soft Touch Guy as well.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some real, real humor that comes with that, too. No Especially doubt
1: because it. you're just waiting for the, the worm to turn. Yep. By the way, did notice that the, 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 on page 11, there's a shot of Booster Gold that ended up in one of the Justice League source books from Mayfair. I, oh, my gosh.
0: You know, I didn't put that in my notes because I thought it was too obscure. And I'm like, well, that's just something I know. But it absolutely is. It's like there's the booster shot and the Black Canary. Both show that whole panel is in the source books and I remember because so when I first saw it, I'm like, why do I know that pose from Black Canary? Hmm. And then I realized it's absolutely from one of the source books. How funny.
1: Well, it always stood out because a lot of the art on those books was kind of like plain style guide type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you had this really nice looking piece of Booster Gold. You're like, where the heck did that come from? Because you don't I don't think about this story when I see Booster Gold. You know, this is right. a Manhattan guy story so
0: that is hysterical i'm so glad you mentioned that i know cisco at home is nodding along as well without a doubt so here's a little bit of uh because i have too much time on my hands apparently a little bit of fact checking problems i started looking at a world map and looking at the time zones and there's actually a a nerd nitpick issue with the with this issue when they arrive in was it tokyo it's nighttime right Okay, yeah. Okay, you with me there? Uh-huh. It's not complicated. The sky's black and it's got stars in there. It's pretty straightforward. Then when we go to Australia with uh, Martian Manhunter and Dr. Fate, it's daytime, right? Mm-hmm. They're pretty much either in the same time zone or only an hour or two off from each other.
1: Okay, so it was evening in one place and night in the other. No, or- that is full-on C- uni-
0: night and that is full-on day, sir.
1: Or in the DC Universe, the tilt of the Earth is slightly different. <laughs> I don't know what the no prize is for DC Comics, but I'm going for it, buddy. You
0: really, really are in a lot of these aspects. Okay. Well, all right. Oh, no, I'm not going to give that one to you, actually.
1: (laughs) I'm only doing it to Jack with you anyway. So. I hadn't
0: noticed. <laughs> I will give you that I love the bit where Martian Mainhunter talks about the danger the Earth is in but calls it Mars instead. Mm-hmm. That I thought was a nice moment. That was, and, and he actually stops to recognize it, too. I thought that was really cool. That got me. You probably hated it because you hate everything, though.
1: No, no, no I, I like that moment because even though he was definitely playing into the mini miniseries, it wasn't obvious at that point. It's only the second and third and fourth times that they do that. That's when it starts to get a little too much.
0: Maybe they weren't playing into the miniseries. Maybe they were just trying to tell a strong martial manhunter story, and they came out the other side and said, "You know what? Really to develop this character, maybe we can do more with him." Uh,
1: no, I don't buy it. I mean, and I asked the the same thing, and he said, "No, he, he, you know, they they maybe left some threads, but they didn't have the manhunter miniseries yet." But man, some of those tips are just a little too overt, a little too on the nose for me. I'm calling BS on a great writer, and I'm just some loser on the internet. So you
0: are. I mean, I I tell you, ugh. I'm going to have to redact almost everything you say from this episode. It's just going to be me talking to myself. It's like those Garfield strips. Where oh, they, yeah,
1: Garfield without Garfield?
0: Right, where it's just John talking to himself and he seems completely insane. Yeah, it's going to be one of those. You know what I caught on like the third rereading of this comic I did in the first time? Or, or second time? What, did, what is he called? The larvae bomb that he throws? When it flies past Martian Manhunter, it's this cute little device. And I didn't notice in the background, willing him to take the time to write ping, ping, ping. Which is a really
1: nice touch. That made me happy. Is that supposed to be related to the Mother Box? Yeah. Oh, so you know Mr. Miracle's in the
0: Exactly. It's a Mr. Miracle device, so therefore it's connected to Mother Box, so it goes ping, ping, ping. I just thought that was really cool.
1: Points to Bob Lapin.
0: There you go. Well, it, was it Bob Lapin, you think, or was it Willingham?
1: I don't know. These it's, it's are tough things to say. He's a letter artist. It could go either way.
0: Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Although that germ lo- warfare logo for the story title was pretty terrible, so uh, we'll give the credit of Willingham. Although Lapin Lapin is a great letterer. I don't want to snag on him too much. That was just a terrible logo. But uh, that guy, and everybody credits him. He was a wonder for being able to fit so much dialogue comfortably in the balloons because those guys didn't know when to quit with the vaudeville shtick. sometimes.
0: And his lettering style is so iconic. I mean you see it and you know immediately who it is and you know it's a Justice League book just by seeing the lettering half the time. He did did such a great job and I I love – you're absolutely right. He does not get nearly enough credit.
1: He, I would have to say he's definitely one of the superstar letterers, but he, he never seemed to get up into the upper tiers in terms of his recognition. But he, the guy was fantastic on this book, and, and they could not have done as good of a book without this particular letterer.
0: Without a doubt. Towards the end, got some things about the alien cell. One of them is a question here. All right, so first of all, the alien cell creating all the human body creature, totally icky. Ugh. Like the drawing's fine, but if I sit there and actually think about what that would look like in real life, it's like disgusting. It's really gross.
1: Yeah, what are these people touching?
0: Uh, they're all
1: in all sorts of uncomfortable ways. Yeah, they've
0: got to be all intertwined. And like, I'm imagining the bodies are sliding around probably too, not just like in one stationary muscle spot or something. Ah.
1: Very well rendered though. And I mean, even though he doesn't literally draw every single body, your mind fills in those details and you see and you feel that ugh, it, it, it works very, very well.
0: Yes, yes, gross, gross. Less of the better. Effective, thank you there. So explain this to me. I'm not really sure how this works. Van Manhunter can imprison the cell, right? Inside it. Mm-hmm. Him. How does that work with the rest of the infected world? Did like did he get the core consciousness cell or something? <laughs> because,
1: I think that Dr. Fate said, uh, let's see.
0: Uh... Nothing more exciting than on a podcast than listening to someone read a comic.
1: Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that they said in the story that the core consciousness was inside the construct. I think that they did put a little line in there to, to suggest that. So I, I, I give a pass on that particular aspect.
0: Okay, I guess I must have missed that in my three times reading it. But I, I just was sitting there thinking, you know, if the infection is all the way out across the world, uh, how is that working? But you know what, if that's in there and that one cell obviously represented the core of the whole thing. Okay, all right, fair enough. Now you this said
1: – Comic book, chillax. God. <laughs> really take a part, why don't you?
0: Now, you said <laughs> that it returns in the miniseries. So tell me a little more about that.
1: Okay, well, basically the start of the miniseries is the Marshman Hunter, you know, his, his body's all contorted because it's being drawn by Mark Badger, but also because it's supposed to be. He's suffering from a terrible fever, and he's seeing these hallucinations of the god Heronmere, and he doesn't know what's real and what's false, and pr- pretty much the entire miniseries is him dealing with these hallucinations, the Dust League trying to deal with him, essentially on the rampage, as he goes back and forth between... Lucid and nutso, and he's he's basically he's burning off the infection within him because even though he can host it, and even though the virus isn't necessarily going to get out and affect the human population, it does eventually start to take effect on him, and that actually might be uh, an issue for Dr. Fate because he left the team so it's promptly he never got the chance to help him deal with this thing that popped up uh, a year and a so later.
0: okay, all right.
1: And I, I could tell you more, but it would kind of re- ruin the end of the miniseries. But yeah, the, the, this is a directly tied in to that miniseries, and if they ever collected it, which more and more likely seems like it will never happen, this annual would go very well with it.
0: Mm, okay. So sort of like a, a kickoff to the thing. Very much so. Interesting. I am hoping to cover the mini miniseries on a future episode of the uh, the Meanwhile episodes, so I, I look forward to reading that and not having you as a guest. So that
1: should be a lot of fun. Hey, I look forward to not being a on those that so, <laughs> with that. I'm going to have to cover it eventually, but it, it really is a sore spot because I do think the story is quite good. It's just the art is so not appealing. And even when I try to reread it, even with the affection I have for the character, even with my recognition of the impact it had on the character and my love for J.M. DeMatteis and everything else, I just struggle to get past the artwork.
0: I try to be very positive in all the podcasts and blogs and stuff like that I'm associated with, but I have to tell you, uh, in the Who's Who podcast, which is, as Frank said earlier, another show on the network that I'm part of, we did cover the updated Martian Manhunter entry that was after the miniseries drawn by Mark Badger, and that artwork was really disappointing.
1: And that was really good, Mark Badger, like very on-model, heroic, inspirational by comparison to what you're going to find in the miniseries.
0: That's a shame because I like Mark Badger's work. Mark Badger does some really nice stuff here and there, but uh, it doesn't sound like. Like that's going to be something of my favorite.
1: I, I've heard that those books exist. I haven't encountered them myself, though. <laughs> I've heard good things about the Gargoyle miniseries, and i never read that. I think Greenberg and the Vampire you're supposed to have done and some Doctor Strange stuff. But it just all the stuff I've been exposed to just kills me.
0: Fair enough. Before we move on to the next segment, what other comments do you have on the issue?
1: I just want to say it was funny to me after the whole, I just want to give everybody a chance to put in their input moment with Batman. Yes. The Black canary, like, I would have done the same thing. I would have had the two member teams go off in all these different directions. And it's like, Canary, that's the reason why you don't get to be the leader for 25 years and it lasts for about five minutes because it's a terrible plan. <laughs> I have this theory that Batman is intentionally a bad leader because let's face it. I mean what about the spandex that they're wearing is supposed to protect them from a virus that's rapidly spreading all over the world and obviously must be airborne or easily contracted what what do these superheroes have that they're not going to be affected by that, and why wouldn't Batman think that through
0: That's a good point. They should all be wearing like you know hazmat gear shouldn't they
1: right exactly I mean and they're all in space suits in issue seven when they where they're battling to create the Just League international and the satellites going nuts and yada 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 spoilers. <laughs> um But nothing here. And so even Dr. Fate is, is contaminated by this, and nobody thought to apply standard precautions to this situation. The other thing, though, is Batman always does this. He's the guy who comes up with this big strategy, and he sends the guys out on his marching orders, and they all get defeated. And then he freaking disappears, and then he shows up just in time to save everybody and make himself look great. I think he's doing that stuff on purpose. <laughs> It happens too often. He's supposed to be so smart, and yet the JLA is always falling, and he's the one guy who makes it. He's got no powers. It's all part of the plan, man. That guy, you got to watch that dude. Well,
0: it's, besides branding, it's all about impressing people. So, exactly. Yeah, you could, you're could you probably onto something there. He might even be working with the bad guys just to make sure that he comes in at the right moment to look so suave and cool.
1: Hey, he didn't make those millions being a good guy. Dun-dun-dun!
0: As we move on here, you may notice we're skipping two sections that we normally cover on the show. One is the Monitor Duty section, which is where we discuss other comics on the shelves the same month that feature JLI members. Well, it, it doesn't make sense to cover them this time because this issue came out the same month as Justice League International number 5, which we covered on the last episode. It's all the same stuff. Same thing with the house ads. The house ads in this issue uh, mirror house ads that have appeared in the last two issues of Justice League, so no point really getting into those.
1: It's really too bad, too, because I have thoughts on Wild Dog.
0: Well, if you'd like to talk about him, the star of the upcoming Arrow TV series, feel free.
1: I actually bought the Wild Dog miniseries when it was coming out. It was one of those books I tried during my big DC run, and I think it was actually one of the ding comics I got from that one shop that was available to me for two weeks. And the thing that's interesting about Wild Dog is he was a very ground level version of the Punisher. Like he didn't have the big arsenal. He drove around in a pickup truck, he used gym equipment. So he was very stripped down and the original miniseries was all was kind of like Shadow Hawk if you remember that book. Mm-hmm. Where the part of the point of the miniseries is trying to figure out who from the cast of characters is Wild Dog. And then they revealed it oh. at the, and then at the end of the miniseries they revealed it and then there's no reason to do any more Wild Dog stories. And what it reminded me a lot of was do you remember the Robert Ginty vehicle the Executioner? No. Okay. Robert Ginty was from this show, The Paper Chase. Of course, he's the absolutely the guy you'd picture as a vigilante. Uh, so he does basically a remade version of Death Wish, but with more fantastic elements. He runs around with like a welder's mask and a flamethrower against Yankees. It was extra sadistic. He's kind of like the peacemaker more like. Okay. And so the first one was actually pretty good. And then they made a second one with Mario Van Peebles. And oh it was gosh <laughs> and more cartoony. And it's like, no, you told everything you need to tell with that first story when you try to bring him out of retirement and have him do the whole thing again. He's out of family members to kill off. You need to stop now. You dealt one good movie relative to like 1984 standards. You need to stop now. But they went and they made Executioner number two. And it was number two for sure. And the same thing with Wild Dogs. Don't do any more Wild Dogs stories. You, you did the human level version of Punisher. You told that in a realistic fashion. You did your mystery. Now it's time to get out. But they got greedy and made a little bit of money. And also he's in Action Comics Weekly. <laughs>
0: I don't know if that's really necessarily greedy, but <laughs> Action Comics Weekly.
1: I think I remember that miniseries doing decent, though.
0: The original miniseries? It may have. It may have.
1: And I think it is special as well. They tried to bring that guy back, and it's just like, you know, just let it die. You, you did your story. Stop now.
0: DC threw everything they can against the wall back then. you got to give him credit for that. And I I have to give you credit for mentioning The Paper Chase. I love that show.
1: <laughs> and uh, But you don't remember Robert Ginty? I, if you showed me a picture, I know who he was. Okay. Also, I, I don't think that um, Max Allen Collins and Terry Beater were used to that wild dog money when they were doing Miss Tree, so that probably was an incentive as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, folks. With that, we're going to move on to the next segment: the all-important Wahaha Award. And this is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both Frank and I are going to pick our moments, and only one of them are going to walk away with a coveted Blah Ha Ha Award. Now, we talked about in this issue that this is a more straightforward comic as compared to other JLI issues. However, i got to say, there are a lot of funny moments in this comic. I'm going to run through real real quick lightning round kind of sort of thing. There's that bit where there's the Star Trek and Twilight Zone confusion, which is pretty funny. The Guy Gardner and Batman banter about doing monitor duty and that construct with Batman with the gun in his head. Batman making an effort to ensure everyone feels included in the decision making. The uh, Beatle talking about being an 80s man and having nervous breakdowns. Mr. Miracle on the floor of the bug after they accelerate too fast. Booster hitting on Black Canary and failing spectacularly. Dr. Light kissing Batman, uh, Mr. Miracle comparing himself to Jesus Christ. Then Mr. Miracle, he makes this great line about California. He goes, those people, like drones and Darkseid's fire bits, no minds of their own, no will at all. Although, from what I hear about Southern California, that's not all that unusual. So, I mean, there's just some really funny bits still in the issue. So that's a fair amount of humor. So, Frank, I ask you, what are you going to nominate for the Blah ha ha Award this in this issue?
1: This is an overall very successful and entertaining podcast, but the worst element is arguing over what was the funniest line. I abstain.
0: You are not allowed to do that. (laughs) You are such a contrarian ruiner. Pick a damn funny moment, Frank.
1: Um, I guess the best bits are the Southern California line or the monthly Nervous Breakdown lines. So you could pick whichever one your favorite is and we'll just move on.
0: Interesting. Okay. My suggestion, my nomination for the Baha Award is it had a good setup and a good delivery and a payoff. It was Batman making an effort to ensure that everyone felt included in the decision-making process when he had already made up his mind and he was full of crap. It was just trying to be what he thought would be a good manager up into the point where he told them he was just trying to be a good manager. That's what my suggestion would be.
1: But we're not going to have the argument, so we can just move on then. <laughs> Normally,
0: I would then say, you know what, I would give it to the guest. But you know what, you're being such a dillweed. I'm going to give it to Batman. Congratulations, Dark Knight! You have won yourself a blah ha, ha award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Wear it with pride, sir. And I think this is probably his second one he's won. So uh Bruce Wayne, he's always getting it. You know, he's always he's always successful. That bastard.
1: Honestly, I didn't think that was a good laugh line. Are you so, serious? You know. I didn't really like that one that Again, much. Again,
0: you know why? Because it's supposed to be funny. That's why you didn't like it.
1: Part of Guy Gardner is my favorite character Just League International. Did you not follow <laughs> <laughs>
0: Normally, folks, this is where your feedback would go. We do the whole Justice Log segment at this point, but this is an annual, and it's a Meanwhile episode, so we're going to cover your feedback from this issue in a future episode of the monthly coverage, and uh, as always, my thanks go out to all you folks for all your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic, and the love we're sharing for this series is great, and the outpouring, just the sheer outpouring for the, the love for this comic is just astonishing, so... Folks, please keep those cards and letters coming. And if you want to comment on this episode, please go out to our website. Again, it's firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave a comment on the post there. You can visit us on Facebook, which apparently no one uses if you're 16 years old or under, which is facebook.com slash JLI podcast. Or you can just look up Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. On Twitter, it's the at Civil and JLI Podcast. Or we have an email address if you'd like to do that that way. It's jlipodcast at gmail.com. Frank, this is where we park company, sir. Uh, I would say it's been a pleasure having you on the show, but that would be a bald-faced lie. I do appreciate, though, you being on this very special episode, our first meanwhile episode. Frank, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs?
1: Hey, I got mine. You're on your own. Anyhow, current DC podcast I've got running is The Idol of Diablo, covering the Martian Manhunter. I, I keep threatening to get more Diana Prince Wonder Woman's out. I, I need, I'm actually, Likely I'm story. currently waiting. Yeah, I'm currently waiting for the ultimate edition of Batman versus Superman to come out so I can watch that one time and never again, kind of like my parents on this podcast. Uh, I also, by the time this is out, uh, DC Bloodline should be back running again, too. It's muchly about the new bloods created in the 1993 annual event, but I'm also covering more obscure cover areas of the DC universe. So uh, feel free to check that out. It's not entirely as off-putting as it sounds by calling it Bloodlines.
0: Thank goodness you're getting back to all those new bloods that everyone's been clamoring for.
1: Hey, man. Anima's got a fan base you wouldn't believe, let me tell you.
0: You're right. I wouldn't believe it.
1: I don't either. I don't know anybody who likes that character. Anyway, uh, I'm going to talk about her anyway. Just like, you know, I'm contrary, What can I tell you? Uh, one thing I will point out to specific to your listeners is that uh, I've been getting commissions, jam commissions of various characters related to Martian Manhunter. And as it happens, he has a fair few friends in Justice League International. So by the time you hear this, you'll probably be able to see some of those portions of the of jams up on the DC Bloodlines blog or maybe the Justice League blog. So uh, if if you're a fan, check it out. I'll I'll retweet it to Shag, and despite his adversarial presence right now, he'll dutifully retweet for me, so it's all good.
0: Anytime he tags me, I know it's my obligation to retweet, or I'm going to get a nasty message from him. Unfortunately, I gave him my phone number a couple years ago, so I get random drunken texts from him from time to time. I'm just terrified the day that he moves up the the scale enough to get a smartphone, and he can start sexting me. Oh, God, the nightmares.
1: You know you love it. Also, if you are really tired of me and you want to find other people that are also obnoxious, but in different ways, like different flavors of Guy Gardner types. Uh, My buddies on the Rolled Spine podcasts, uh, we do especially the Marvel Superheroes podcasts, because Marvel greater than DC. Uh, So you got... Certainly DC movies, at the very least, you can see that. Oh,
0: snap. I don't know. Suicide Squad looks pretty good, actually.
1: Suicide Squad looks really good. Not a very DC movie, which is probably why it works, because Suicide Squad is more in tune with the Snyderverse than pretty much any other DC property. Well,
0: and, you know, there's always Swamp Thing Returns.
1: Hey, Wild Dog's coming your way, too. (laughs)
0: So that's all the things you're not going to mention? You're not going to mention your Justice League Detroit blog or –
1: that's The thing I haven't updated in ages. Actually, hopefully by the time this comes out, I will have done a Vixen Spotlight episode on DC Bloodline, something that's actually still viable. Okay. let it go. Okay, let it go. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, Frank uh – uh as much as it pains me to say it, I do actually appreciate you being here. And folks, come back next episode where we will return to our normal numbering and we will cover Justice League number six. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me, who hopefully won't be nearly as annoying. Who will that be? Sorry, folks. You're just going to have to wonder until next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, I'm Shag.
1: And I'm in the teleporter.
0: And you've been listening to the JLI podcast. Want to make something of it?
1: Hey, Bill Paxton directed the Fishheads video. <laughs> Will Bill you Paxton shut up, the video for fish heads. I just want to let you know that.
0: Bill Paxton directed the Fishheads
1: he video? He in the video for Fishheads.
0: Random knowledge bomb. Thank you. <laughs> Can you shut up and let's do the show? Hello. He was welcome- also in the video for and <laughs> I can't even hear you over my own <laughs> laughter. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> This is 90 minutes of my life. I'm never getting back.
1: Hello. I promise. You son of a bitch. (laughs) Hello, and
0: welcome to the Justice League International, Bwahaha ha -ha podcast. A proud member of the Fired Water (laughs) podcast. Damn you, Frank.
1: (laughs) I love it when I don't have to do anything.